The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at Me Audio for hooking up the promo code. Now, let's get on with the show. All right. I believe this means we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, aka Some Gadget Guy, the SGG of this terribly named podcast series, but the QA, that's the important part. Obviously, question and answer, we like to have an interactive conversation about all the news. It's why I like to hold my podcast on a Monday. We've, we can kind of sort out the news from the last week, kind of dig into the headlines, see how we feel about it. Maybe some news broke over the weekend. Get our week started fresh with some really fun tech geeks here in my chat. Already seeing some great names. Jman150, Muffinish, Simon Says Hypno, uh, Ronald Sims, Otaku, Gormlord, Kapakash, Farhan, Onskan, uh, Dave popped in on the Discord just to say he he wasn't going to be here at the top of the show, but maybe he'll be around later to make fun of me because he's usually the guy that's uh, that's calling me out. So, oh Gormlord, I love this hat. Yeah, this is one of my favorite. This is this is like one of my favorite podcasting hats. I feel like everybody should seek out and own some version of the hat that I'm currently wearing. I, I feel like. It makes the right kind of uh, fashion statement for the uh, for the discerning technology enthusiast. <laughs> oh, Barry Johnson's popping in, saying hey to Ronald, saying hey to me. Dave Burns is here. What's up, Dave? Happy to see you in the chat. It's okay if you got to take the meeting, Dave. I'd much rather you be able to pay like rent and buy food. <laughs> so that's okay. So, folks, this is where I would normally like. 
lean into all of the jokes about me rambling on and derailing the podcast and talking about my weekend. We had a lovely weekend. We got to see some friends, uh, a couple we're very close to is going to be moving out of state. And so we kind of had a, a celebratory lunch to sort of see them off. Um, there's something that I kind of snapped on this morning and it dovetails with some of the, uh, the housekeeping, like going through some of the articles and some of the videos that I've already published. So I want to jump right into housekeeping. Um, I do hope everybody had a lovely weekend, but in moving quickly through housekeeping, we're going to spend a little time in, in, in this year, 2023, and as I've been mentioning the plight of being a content creator in the year 2023, we've been, we tried to highlight some of those other creators that we, that we really enjoy their work, but then also talking about sort of their burnout and something happened this morning that I feel contributes to that conversation in a way where we need to look at what kind of audience we're trying to build And do platforms really empower us to build a healthy community around these conversations? So I'm doing this here on my podcast because I feel like this is a pretty, pretty safe space. Uh, Simon says, Hypno, 19 minutes for housekeeping. I will be very surprised if we're done in a half hour. So why don't we chew through just the stories and videos and stuff that I've posted? And then I want to I want to help detail this. Um, because I feel if we don't talk about this stuff publicly and we just continue to let it fester, that is what contributes to people leaving our craft and leaving our industry. And you get less fun stuff to watch unless it's just the most algorithmically popular sort of surface level stuff. If you're watching a podcast or listening to a podcast like mine, I have to believe (laughs) you care about any additional kind of tech commentary beyond that. So I'm going to switch over to screen share here. We're going to fly through these um, uh, from the pajama podcast week uh, last week, which was the last week of February. Razor Edge versus Steam Deck. Can Android topple PC gaming? And that's really easily answered. Like, it's no. But if I don't play these silly games with thumbnails and dumb questions in the title, then these videos get no traffic. I'm very impressed with the Razor Edge. And I feel like Android gaming has a ton of uh, realized potential. So this is just a showdown, you know, like a performance per watt conversation, ergonomic conversation. There are reasons why someone should probably get a Steam Deck, but then there are reasons why someone might enjoy a Razer Edge better. Uh, moving right along, we got our first look at the Xiaomi 13. We're going to spend a little time in the second half of this podcast talking about how I'm benchmarking the Note 23 and the Xiaomi 13 and just genuinely these little pockets of, of just absolute joy in performance uh, enthusiasts, or I should say for performance enthusiasts this year, where we were this time last year, we were all a little anxious about, you know, how hot premium phones could run. And I want to scroll back up here. I had a sponsored video. I felt like this was an interesting conversation to tackle. I I don't do a ton of sponsored uh, videos unless I feel like it's a topic worth sort of examining from the viewpoint of being sponsored. And this is from a company called Aerolo. They they build themselves as the world's first eSIM store. And if you want to easily pick up data while you're traveling, I think that is an excellent use of an eSIM. If you just want a temporary bucket of data um, for like a tablet or a smartwatch or something like 
hey, you're going to be on a road trip and you want to connect another device, but you don't want to permanently add it to your carrier's plan, uh, I would highly recommend checking out this video. It, it did kind of help ease some of the pain of being a gadget reviewer as more, more devices go to eSIM. Um, actually, I'm going to really quickly just highlight something on the Patreon. Uh, I posted this the day after I put out my major Samsung 200 megapixel camera comparison with the Vivo X90 Pro. This article is called The Note 23 Just Ruined a Great B Photo. I, I feel like there are some obnoxious trends with how Samsung is copying certain trends in social media. And one is how a bright, vibrant, low-noise image is desirable on Instagram, but really that kills a lot of detail in our shots. So I actually detailed this with, uh, sort of while I'm shooting for my Samsung camera review, I had this great little sit-down, and I'm trying to shoot a close-up photo of a flower, and a little bee flies in, and I'm like, oh, this is the perfect, you know, kind of test for a quick you know, shutter lag, all those things that we we say we care about. And the Note 23 kind of destroyed that photo. It's not a good photo. So you can dig into that a little bit more. This is a sort of a behind the scenes on the Patreon. And then the big video. This one took me so long to shoot and to analyze and to edit. Galaxy S23 Ultra. Can 200 megapixels beat the Vivo X90 Pro's one inch sensor? No, no, it cannot. And uh, this has been super divisive. Uh, I put out this video, and, and again, it's, I'm very unimpressed with tech reviewers that go outside and they just randomly shoot like two photos. And I totally kept the phones perfectly side by side, which means you weren't composing for both phones. If you ever just hold two cameras side by side, you can see a distinct difference in the field of view and how it, it's, it's focusing and how it's exposing and how it's metering. And it takes a lot of work. If we're analyzing one claim, 200 megapixels, that one claim needs to be dealt with specifically. And this is one of those videos where I cannot come to a conclusion that supports Samsung's absurd marketing. Samsung makes the silliest ads for their marketing claims. It, 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 we, if we can't acknowledge that they're trying to brand some kind of feeling and they're not really kind of digging into the actual real-world performance of, of their products, then this game is totally over because it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you just feel good about your phone. You don't care if it can really do what the manufacturer claims it can do. So my, my hypothesis is you will get better pixel level detail with a bigger sensor. And when you compare the sensor level details of Samsung's camera versus a one inch sensor on the Vivo X90 Pro versus a micro four thirds camera, like I'm shooting this podcast on my Panasonic, wouldn't you know it, the phone that's closer to the Panasonic is the phone with the bigger sensor because the pixel, the pixel pitch is almost identical. When you bend down, a Vivo has 3.2 micron pixels, and this Panasonic G9 has 3.3 micron pixels, and a Galaxy has 2.4 micron pixels. There's, there's no good metric that we can say you get so much more detail to improve your image. It's so stark, you could take a 50 megapixel high res photo from the Vivo and blow it up 
to 200 megapixels and have better image quality than what you can get out of Samsung's 200 megapixel mode. This has, of course, caused a flurry of angry teeth gnashing, and, and I leaned into it. I mean, at the beginning of my video, I'm being a snarky little git because I, I have to keep pushing back against this idea that there is a distinct difference between Samsung fans, just people who like Samsung phones, and Samsung Knights, the people that aggressively and actively go to every video on the internet that doesn't pat them on the back for owning a Samsung, and they leave extremely hateful <laughs> comments on all of this content. And it, and it sucks because, like, on the one hand, I know I'm upsetting Samsung fans. Someone went and spent $1,200 on a Note 23 Ultra, and they're going to watch the first couple minutes of my video, and they're probably going to feel bad, and they're probably going to be angry with me, and someone might say I'm radicalizing them. But at the other end of this equation is... I can't put out a video about a Motorola without Samsung Knights marching into this to that video and loudly proclaiming that I'm a Motorola shill because in my Motorola video, I didn't praise a Galaxy. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I, oh, Juan, just brush off the haters. Don't worry about the haters because they don't stay in their videos. The Samsung Knights proliferate on all <laughs> of that content. If you have any kind of nuance where you might indicate a feature on another phone is better than a comparable feature on a Samsung, you're basically in for grief. And you can't escape it. So I've chosen a different tact. I am actively trying to make sure that they block me or that they ignore me or that they just never want to see my videos ever again. And it makes me kind of bitter. And that's not where I want to live. But like I said, one, one little element of this kind of popped up in an interesting way this morning. So um, I've been muting comments all, all week. I mean, since, since uh, even before publishing this video, I've been talking about Xiaomi's and Vivo's and I've been getting just like a daily comment, which is just like, you're a lost cause. And it's always very aggressively sexualized language. Um, it's always in a diminishing fashion built on making feminine roles in society sound undesirable for a man. <laughs> I'm being very cagey and careful because it really does often border on um, abusive language, uh, especially sexually abusive language. And it almost, almost always deals with terms that would make you really upset if you were a homophobe, right? So... There are some words that are automatically just nuked by YouTube. Like, I've set my comments moderation to very strict, right? YouTube is so concerned about the mental health of their creators. They've empowered us with tools to manage our comments. And I've set my tools to the strictest possible that I can without having to manually approve every single comment that gets posted to my thousands of videos on YouTube. One really landed this morning and it was someone who went through almost every single female epithet that they could conjure, calling me um, a desperate a female dog, uh, calling me uh, 
and, and it was funny because in the comment, they also allude to, this is what I love about Samsung Nights is because they always give away what they're most sort of upset about and saying that I was so, um, I was so sad and I was a crying person who gratifies sexually for money. Um, because Samsung must not have sponsored my videos, which is the hilarious part of all of this. This is why I'm not like frothing at the mouth upset is because he said the quiet part out loud. If there was no financial incentive for me to say nice things about Samsung, well, then I guess I'm free to criticize Samsung. If I have a strict working relationship with Samsung PR and there's a distinct financial benefit to saying nice things about Samsung and appeasing all of these Samsung knights, well, then I guess I would be saying nicer things about Samsung. That's the hilarious part of this. The thing that really made me upset is through three, and and there really isn't an excuse, but through three, just terrible, demeaning, gendered, and homophobic, abusive statements in in a single YouTube comment. YouTube's comment filtering didn't catch that one. If someone says the S word for, you know, the naughty word for poop, that comment's going to get flagged and I have to go into my comment moderation and I have to uncheck it. I'm kind of PG-13 with my comments. I think that's fine. If someone says an F word for the naughty word for copulating, that, that comment gets nuked. If someone calls me a bitch... If someone calls me a whore, that language doesn't get gets, uh, res- uh, reserved for me to monitor that comment. That comment just gets posted public. And now that's in my comments on a video. And it's up to me to police the comments. If my comments get too toxic, I get a community strike. YouTube published that comment on my behalf. Even though I've set YouTube up to give me the best possible filtering. So now I have to manually go into my YouTube settings and start adding words. But isn't it so interesting? Some of the big naughty words, that's an automatic, you know, sort of reserve from YouTube. But those other ones, the gendered ones, no, that's totally fine. So I wake up this morning and I go through the whole process and I just nuke the comment and I report the person for hate speech because it was extremely hateful speech and I mute them from the channel and they, I, they probably won't even know. And, and it's like I'm pouring my first cup of coffee going, but wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm totally ignoring this on the daily and yet this is exactly what content creators like Trisha Hirschberger and Shannon Morse are, are yelling about every single day. Every single day. I mean, I know I'm supposed to brush it off and have thick skin, and that's what making videos is like on the internet. But I don't have to manually filter F-bombs. YouTube takes care of that for me. But extremely <laughs> hateful and abusive gendered slurs, totally fine. Those slip through the content moderation, no issues, no problems. And so uh, it, it, it doesn't engender in me a feeling like, well, I just got to brush it off. Or you know what? If I didn't antagonize the Samsung Knights so much, maybe if I didn't bully these bullies. No, 
No, we, we, we push back against bullies. And this is also why I feel like I need to start more publicly sharing all of these comments with names attached. Instead of like doing the thing where I'm going to really be magnanimous and I'll black out their name because the, they deserve some kind of privacy. Because when I highlight this and people go to my comments and they see that it's pretty decently manicured, I think it's giving them the wrong impression of how awful that this situation has really become. I think I've, I've done a good job of keeping my comments being a place where people can, can engage with these types of tech topics and, and get into some really aggressive debate. I don't silence people for having strong opinions. It's when they start being abusive to me or to other people in the chat, that's when I shut them down. So this is kind of unique to Samsung. And I feel like I need to be more public drawing a bigger dividing line between people who like Samsung products and this breed of Samsung in-cell night. Because I feel like the, the Samsung fans walk away feeling like I'm talking about them. If you're not running around YouTube leaving hateful and misogynistic comments on Motorola videos, then that's not you. I don't know how else to depict that, and I don't know how else to spell that out for you. But I have to push back against people who are bullies. And only Samsung, only Samsung marketing has engaged in attracting bullies. Apple played with this a little bit back in the Mac versus PC days. Unfortunately, they picked a PC who was very sympathetic. And so Apple walked away from comparing their products to other companies' products. No other company in Western marketing has singled out their competitors to mock their competitors and singled out their competitors' employees to mock their competitors' employees and gone out of their way to ridicule the customers of their competitors. Only Samsung has nailed that trifecta. And so Samsung marketing has attracted a very special breed of white knight, fragile snowflake, individuals. And it sucks because the vast majority of Samsung owners just own a Samsung. But guess who's the loudest? <laughs> Apple owners don't come to my videos on Motorola. They're just assured of the fact that they own the bestest because Apple told them. They're over it. They don't, they don't engage in hateful misogynistic debate in my comments because they just feel like they already own the best. So they just bugger off and they leave me alone. Someone brought up, like, what about those rabid Team Pixel people? Team Pixel people are not going to my Oppo <laughs> or Xiaomi or Vivo videos and freaking out that I didn't somehow pat them on the head that the, the, the Pixels have the best of cameras. They watch those videos and then say, hey, it would be kind of cool if a Pixel had a manual mode. Or, hey, it would be kind of fun if my Pixel could shoot 50 megapixels. Hashtag Team Pixel. <laughs> it is only that incel breed of Samsung Night. And it's also one of those moments where I have that moment of clarity being a dude. And realizing, like, the tools that YouTube claim protect us are very unbalanced. And I feel like I need to offer an apology for all of the female content creators where I've kind of like commiserated with the plight of people who have been trying to make content on YouTube, but then face that kind of 
just horrifically gross misogynistic experience in making YouTube videos. And I've, if I've ever equated my issues with their issues, I've, I've completely missed the point. And I feel like that's an, that's an opportunity and that's a situation where I totally should have been better. I probably should have shut up and I probably should have listened more. And it sucks that in, when I started making videos in earnest in 2007, in all the years that I've been doing this, like it took a moment of clarity this morning, shrugging off yet another comment of someone calling me a bitch and a whore um, for me to figure out, oh no, this means something different when it's applied at scale to someone who identifies as a different gender than I do. And YouTube's tools, horrifically inadequate, completely inadequate. In fact, there's a stream of this that's going to Twitch and there's a stream of this that's going to YouTube. And I'm actually a little worried that the stream of this that's going to YouTube, YouTube's going to freak out that I said these words, bitch and whore. But those comments got published for me on my channel. And it's up to me to make sure that my comments are a safe place or YouTube will also punish me for the comment that they allowed on my channel. And if that's not ridiculous hypocrisy, I don't know what is. So that's the heavy. That's why I was really upset. <laughs> this was not, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting revelation and I'm glad I kind of had this moment and the light bulb clicked and I could kind of see a little beyond myself and also another opportunity for me to get over myself. Um, but it's also encouraging me to kind of continue pushing back against this notion and finding any other creative outlet or opportunity to sort of make this a more fun conversation. If you're a fan of Samsung, I want you to like your gear. I want you to like it for what it really does. I don't want you to like it because of Samsung's imaginary fairy tale marketing. What they promised you is not what they're delivering. What they're delivering is really cool. You should like it for that. But it, it, it's, it's a very, there's, there's an enormous gulf in between, hey, I just kind of like my, my Samsung Note and the S Pen is pretty cool to you're a bitch and a whore and Samsung didn't pay you to promote their, their products, so that's why you're crying and whining in your video. But only with more hateful language than that. We can, can't acknowledge that gulf in between those two Samsung consumers, then I feel we've kind of lost what little shred of gadget enthusiast geek dignity that we'll be able to maintain. And every single time something like this comes up, it perfectly illustrates and highlights how the rest of the, the general YouTube video watching world views our community. Because who's the loudest? The most hateful are the loudest. So we've been losing fans, tech enthusiasts. They've just sort of left and moved on with their lives. We're not replenishing our ranks. And that's very evident in how like sales trends are going with different types of consumer electronics and phones and tablets and a kind of a decaying effect on how people are excited about new product announcements and buying new gear. And they're not turning to us as resources. They're turning to us as sources of drama. And if the drama gets really toxic, well, then it's kind of fun to watch from the sidelines as you kind of munch on some popcorn. But they're not in it for actually appreciating and enjoying and using this stuff. 
And we think we're having this like rich tech conversation, but look around. The internet is shrinking. There are fewer resources to tap into. Our favorite content creators are slowing down or just leaving the conversation entirely. It's not getting better. It's getting so much worse. And when we give in to bullies and we roll over for the Samsung Knights, that is exactly when our hobby dies. Because those are the types of people who think they won an argument because they were the last ones in the room shouting. If you're the last one yelling, you didn't win. <laughs> you didn't win a debate. But that's who's going to be left if we, if we allow this trend to continue down this path. I'm probably going to lose this fight because I can't battle Samsung marketing and you just get exhausted at some point. And that's fine. I'll go on and do something else. And we'll all go on and do other things. And, and we'll still share a passion and love for all of the amazing things that technology can bring us, all of the interactions that we would not have had, the friendships that we would not have had without it. But as it stands right now, I still have a little bit of a fire left to keep fighting this because there are so many stories that I want to dig into as we watch that next phase of technology. I still haven't landed my science fiction phase of technology and I'm kind of desperate. I'm sort of thirsty for what happens next, that FOMO. So I'm, I'm here for now, but it, it's, it's definitely been a bit of a, of, of a chore <laughs> treading water with this current flavor of Samsung. So, um, I, uh, I appreciate, I saw so much activity in the comments and, and I know, like I said, I'm preaching to the choir with the kinds of conversations that we have here. It always comes, seems to come as a shock to other people when I detail this kind of stuff though. And I think it needs to not be a shock. I think we need to discuss why people are still frustrated. And I feel now I need to do a better job of not diminishing the frustrations of others when they're complaining about these types of situations. So really, I, I, I dig into this and, and we can wrap this up and actually get into our news block. We've got a ton of news, so I'm going to try and fly through the news block too. But um, I need to do a better job of practicing what I preach. I, I say, you know, like, hey, if someone is asking you for advice on what to buy for their next phone, you should listen to them. Really listen. Don't just recommend whatever's popular. I need to... I need to drink from that same bottle. If someone's coming to me and they're complaining about these types of experiences that they're having on, a, on one of the only platforms that can foster this kind of content, and I go, yeah, man, let me tell you, this really sucks. I'm not really listening. I'm just waiting for my turn to speak so that I, too, can get my frustrations off my chest. That's not really a good look. I don't think I've done that well. So we'll, we'll try to be better. Thank you for the comments. I, like I said, I was kind of peeking through and looking through, and uh, I, I, I hope that this is something that with some clarity and some distance that we can, we can help share, because it's all about storytelling, and we want good stories. So um, lots, lots of videos went out. <laughs> I've got a ton of content that I'm still working on. I'm shooting a bunch of samples on the Note 23 and the Xiaomi 13. I've got to do some low light stuff. And I still am very slowly piecing together a Vivo X90 uh, kind of 
uh, kind of conversation. So everything that we're going to be talking about, all of those links that I talked about in, in housekeeping um, and all of the stories for our news block and our gadget block, you'll be able to find all those links on this week's show notes, uh, somegadgetguy.com. And uh, maybe I just need to move all my comments over to my blog. <laughs> maybe that's where I need to set up content moderation and filtering and I'll just stop all the comments on YouTube. Uh, well, let me get this out of the way here. Um, I'm going to take a quick drink of coffee and then we're going to jump into some news, uh, starting off with some Netflix news. Cause actually I feel a little sympathetic to Netflix on this story. Uh, I know I wasn't going to dig into all of these, but Farhan and, and Onscon, they're having a conversation about just other toxic communities um, from Farhan. I saw that from e from an ETA Prime video. It's a shame to see what happens since Aether SX2 is a great PS2 emulator. That's another one that I kind of backed away from um, in, in talking about gaming stuff. This sole developer delivers this incredible PlayStation 2 emulator for Android devices and is just savaged by the Android community and then he decides to just leave. We're killing what we think we love. We're destroying the passion and joy in tech. And I'm adding myself to that. I mean, maybe, maybe I need to do more in trying to downplay the, the abuse. No, no, no. Maybe I need to do more in highlighting the abuse to make that undesirable. Maybe we need to encourage others to speak out more. Maybe if you see a comment on a YouTube video, it's okay if you say, hey, that wasn't cool. And it doesn't have to be a thing after that. You can mute them or block them or whatever you need to do. But just any token resistance to horrible, bullying, misogynistic, and hateful commentary on the internet. That's not what we stand for, right? So I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, um, Netflix. Boy, howdy, is Netflix in rough shape. <laughs> I, I, I did. I, I, I was uh, snarky to Netflix on Twitter. Uh, was it yesterday morning or this morning? I, I auto-publish, you know, blog posts and stuff. And uh, I, I reshared my Netflix editorial talking about their pricing. And I did kind of put in a dig, but... It's the reality, and again, I have to sort of speak my truth. Um, the reality of where we're at with Netflix is we drop down to the single screen plan, 720p. I fired up for the very first time after it finally transitioned to 720p, and I immediately get the nag screen from Netflix. But wouldn't this look so much better at full HD 1080p? I went, no, Netflix, play Stranger Things. <laughs> and I rewatched Stranger Things in 720p on my really mediocre office TV, and it looked fine. So, man, am I happy to not spend more on Netflix right now. <laughs> so, uh, this one is a tactic that I have been super defensive on Netflix's behalf, because I feel this is entirely punitive to a specific kind of business model and is not fair. So I am, I am on Netflix's side for this one. But um, our, this is a story from Ars Technica, of course, written up by my uh, eternal man crush, John Brodkin, who I really should start maybe reaching out to in public and seeing. I'd love to just kind of pick his brain 
for like a podcast chat. I digress. Netflix fights attempt to make streaming firms pay for ISP network upgrades. So this is a proposed tax in the EU where they would charge companies that stream and account for more internet traffic, they would charge them more so that that way they could pay for other network enhancements and network um, uh, sort of network improvements. From the Netflix co-CEO, Greg Peters, uh, spoke out against a European proposal to make streaming providers and other online firms pay for ISP network upgrades. Quote, some of our ISP partners have proposed taxing entertainment companies to subsidize their network infrastructure. Uh, the tax would have an adverse effect, reducing investment in content, hurting the creative community, hurting the attractiveness of higher-priced broadband packages, and ultimately hurting consumers. So we saw this throughout the early days of Netflix streaming here in the United States. Um, this was really at the peak of our national interest in net neutrality. And we saw regularly, hey, if I'm watching Netflix on Verizon, man, the quality sucks and it's constantly buffering, but I paid for this amazing Verizon plan. And when I hide that Netflix traffic through a VPN, well, boy, I don't have any issues. And it all just seemed specifically targeted and punitive just to Netflix's business model because they were basically fighting cable at that point. You know, cable TV packages were still at their peak. This is the very, very beginnings of the cord cutting movement. And even YouTube suffered some of that as well. Um, Netflix was ordered to cease and desist when their buffering screen would indicate that the ISP was not fulfilling their bandwidth. And so Verizon said, well, no, you can't tell the customers where the bottleneck really is. If you tell the customers that it's the ISP's fault that they're buffering and not your catalog having issues, we're going to take you to court. And if you remember, this was right around the time that Verizon successfully sued the United States government to dismantle the open internet order, the OIO, the very first flavor, which was super weak, um, the very first flavor of net neutrality that we really tried to institute through the FCC. Hey folks, are you getting bored of the current collection of tech and geek commentary on the internet? Is the discussion of new electronics feeling a bit stale? Do you want to find some fresh voices to add to your subscription queue? Check out the community on r glowing rectangles on Reddit. Now, this subreddit was built to help new voices in the tech community find more audience, and we need your support. Sharing, commenting, and those precious, tasty upvotes. Reddit can radically help a content creator expand their reach. Do you know a producer who deserves more attention? Do you just want to find fun new stuff? Head on over to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and share or browse to your heart's content. Once again, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and let's build something cool together. We're kind of now looking at playing the same game here. I am a staunch proponent of net neutrality and I feel that needs to work both ways. An ISP gets paid by the person producing the content and the person consuming the content. They are paid twice for the same transaction. If they can't figure out a business model where getting paid by both the sender and the recipient, it's like, I paid the post office to send you this package. Now you need to pay the post office 
to receive this package. <laughs> we would be a little upset about that, right? Are, are your post office uh, receipt stamps up to date? Well, you need more receipt stamps. Better pay the post office or you can't get this package from your grandma. Like, I feel that's a terrible analogy, <laughs> but it helps kind of illustrate the inequity of what ISPs are doing. ISPs are an insanely profitable business. Every time we break down, like here in the United States, when we talk about like Comcast, it's like they have network management that they need to keep up with. They're obviously, they've got a lot of like customer service people and buildings and you've got to drive trucks out to locations and fix wires and stuff like that. But there's not been any crazy radical change in broadband distribution in the United States. It's still plodding along in only the most profitable centers, and we haven't fulfilled broadband distribution to people in communities who really are underserved. We haven't seen dramatic speed increases. There's been no competition or pressure to encourage that. So a company like Comcast can basically coast, get tons and tons and tons of profit, also get all the sweetheart zoning deals, still get money from the government, still get taxpayer funds, and not really have to show anything for it. There, there aren't strict demands on them using all this money, charging us extra fees for infrastructure improvements, none of that. If you can't keep a profitable business going when both sides of a transaction have to pay you for that same transaction, I have zero sympathy. Netflix has made a great service that shows the weaknesses of how carriers and ISPs have not really been fulfilling their obligations to their customers. Streaming 720p Netflix should not be an issue for an organization that gets to benefit as greatly from public funds and public infrastructure as they do. Adding another tax just to punish Netflix for having a successful business model doesn't help us in the slightest. And again, this is where capitalism and net neutrality actually join forces. If we want a landscape where companies can actually compete, Netflix would go to ISPs and install servers. Say, hey, let us go into your data center. We're going to put this box here. We're going to manage the box. We're going to pay you for the electricity. And all it's going to do is reduce load on your network. So you will save money and we'll pay you and pay to upkeep this, this installation in your data center. Well, that didn't go over. They, that didn't really become a thing. You can actually find, I think, some of those old Netflix servers. Like, all the, the, the content has been deleted off of them. Um, but someone found one. I, I saw a Reddit post. It was like two weeks ago. I can't remember where they bought it. But you might even be able to find them on eBay. And if you want, you can turn that into a really badass, like, network-attached storage rig. If you've got the space to host one of those, one of those servers, uh, Netflix servers, they're insane machines. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want us to keep an eye on this because something tells me we're going to see a push for this here in the United States. And with the unpopularity of Netflix right now, we're probably going to see support or momentum for, well, yeah, but if Netflix is using up all my data, then I think Netflix should pay more. And that is a a terrible, a terrible wedge into disrupting net neutrality. That is not how we want to pay for the internet. You are already paying the ISP to give you the service. 
we should not be looking at metering or rating or any of these things. Like if you drive on this road, it's going to cost you this much. I mean, those toll type situations are going to be fantastically terrible for the future of competitive business on the internet. So, um, <clears throat> Jojo the Techie, she's in the, she's in the chat. Everyone say, Hey, Jojo. <laughs> Gormlord. I, I mean, again, outside of Gormlord says it's like taxing sales on used stuff. And again, above and beyond, like you buy something used or refurbished and then they're like, Oh, but we need to add an extra, not putting that in a landfill tax on it. <laughs> You're like, I'm already paying tax on this transaction. If it's a refurb, I should not be charged more <laughs> just because. Um, this is another story. This is a, a <clears throat> excuse me. This is a Reuters special report. I'm not going to do a very good job of summing up this article. I'm only going to bring it up so that folks will check it out. Reuters has a great write-up on this story. It'll be in the show notes. Please click the link. Um, I just want to highlight and, and point you in this direction. <clears throat> A Reuters special report, U.S. regulators rejected Elon Musk's bid to test brain chips in humans, citing safety risks. Musk has said his brain implant company Neuralink will make the paralyzed walk, the blind see, and eventually turn people into cyborgs, but the firm still struggles to secure clinical trial approval for the relatively modest goal of helping disabled people type. Uh, I am the person who used to stomp around saying, plug a chip in my brain, I'm ready, I want to be a cyborg. I don't want it to be from Neuralink. Um, I like to, to put up this, this wacky meme, um, of like who we thought Elon Musk was, uh, hold on. Let me, let me see if I can go back into screen sharing this here. So we, we do this thing where it's, uh, well, Musk wants us to think he's Tony Stark and he's Iron Man, but he really started to look more like Justin Hammer from Iron Man 2. But really, we found out he was the weird guy from Ant-Man who was exploding sheep um, to try and shrink them. That's, that's really what Neuralink has been doing. They've, they've, they've killed, uh, I think, almost 2,000 animals in testing that has now run afoul of regulators. And uh, like a shockingly high mortality rate for lab animals. And I don't want that company tinkering with my brain. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's some scary territory. So, um, read through this, the Reuters report. I mean, great timeline breaking down from July, 2019 Neuralink, Neuralink is aiming to receive regulatory approval for human trials, uh, working hard to ensure implant safety and is in close communication, communication with the FDA, uh, Neuralink's estimated worth of more than a billion dollars is a billion dollar company that hasn't turned out for like actual attainable technology that can aid in what the company's mission statement is. It's, I think it's freaky stuff. At some point I'm going to be a cyborg and I really want to be, um, but <laughs> to pull in my matrix here, not like this, not like this. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> 
you're too late, Juan. That's what the vaccine did. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Sveticus, I, I mean, unfortunately, I, 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 I'm because everyone calls me a dirty socialist anyway. Sveticus writes, never trust capitalism with anything health related. The profit motive has no business there. Um, occasionally, we see those little glimmers of an industry finally flipping over. Who is it, Eli? What is the name of the company? Eli Whitney? Uh, taking insulin prices down. You're like, yes, that, I mean, it always should have been that way. The, the patent on insulin was not uh, enforced, or, or what, I forget what status the patent, the original patent on insulin lives in. Because from there, any deviation of that patent can then be claimed as intellectual property, and that's why insulin prices have skyrocketed as we've found better manufacturing processes for different types of slow and fast-acting insulin. It's a complicated story. But, like, drug what is necessary for a population of people to live should never be at the whims of the stock market. (laughs) Oh, no, the stock stock price has dipped 0.3%. Better jack up the price of insulin. (laughs) Eli Lilly, thank you. Why did I say Eli Whitney? Is Eli Whitney a person? Is that like... Am I... That's real bad. I'm sure now that that's probably a historical figure that I should know. Um, from McCorkerin, uh, it's crazy that at, at all that for-profit companies are able to set drug prices. This stuff should be administered by the government and there should be no fee at the point of purchase paid for with progressive taxation. And I completely agree because I'm a dirty hippie. Uh, moving right along, this is another story that I just thought was kind of interesting. It popped up on the Discord, and I think Dave might have shared this story on the Discord. Um, thank you! Simon says, Hypno, Whitney was an American inventor. <laughs> I knew that name sounded familiar, and now I'm such a dork. Uh, I feel, I feel I deserve every disparaging comment that might come to me in the chat over the next half hour. Half hour. Um... Uh, Dave shared this story from The Bite. Uh, who wrote this up? Frank Landymore. Uh, I probably have mispronounced his name. Ford files deranged patent for self-driving cars that repossess themselves. If you fall behind on your payments and your car could simply drive itself away. Um, I mean, we had to know that a patent like this would probably happen. Uh, You think about what the advantage of a self-driving car could be, and in the most sort of utopian sense, it would be cool to have fewer vehicles out in the population able to tackle more individual person driving. Like, I could send a self-driving car to drop my daughter off at school, then swing by and do a grocery pickup from someone just dropping groceries in the trunk, and then have that car roll over to my wife's office to pick her up. I mean, we could have one car just running errands for us, right? In this amazing age of self-driving automobiles, that would be really cool. Of course, if we're not paying for that car and it can do all that crazy science fiction driving around town, it could also just drive itself back to a Ford dealership. So we had to know. Car companies were thinking like, hey, if we're going to put all this money into a self-driving car, we know that there is a not insignificant number of people who fall behind on their car payments. I wonder what we could do (laughs) to reclaim that. Thank you, Scoop. Eli Whitney was the inventor of the cotton gin. Now that you say that phrase, I remember 
I remember it's Sam Waterston narrating. Was it on AMC where they would do like Americana history? And Eli Whitney, the inventor of the cotton gin. Now, now that I know that phrase, I'll, I'll, I'll probably make that mistake again in about a week. Oh, Farhan, I wish, but we know that this is moving really quick. Uh, Farhan says, the direction of the car industry today makes me want to stay with the oldies. I, d- I really want to go. We're definitely going EV for our next car purchase. Um, but yeah, it when cars become a subscription service and they can self-drive themselves and you never own anything or can repair it, it definitely makes for an anxious future because that actually moves us into um, our next story Uh, because the economy and the scale at which we'll need to adapt to EVs is actually kind of terrifying. It's a difficult challenge. It's not one that I think we should shy away from. It's one that I think we need to like headbutt. It's one that I think we need to run into, but this is another Ars Technica story. This one written up by Jonathan Gitlin. Let me, uh, there we go. Uh, here's what Redwood learned in its first year of EV battery, battery recycling. So in February, uh, in February, 2022, Redwood materials began a pilot program in California to recycle electric vehicle batteries. The startup partnered with the state government, as well as Ford, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Toyota, plus the car dismantling industry to source end of life, lithium ion and nickel metal hydride traction batteries. Now a year in, and has shared some of uh, some findings with the first 12 months. In total, Redwood recovered 1,268 battery packs, amounting to more than 500,000 pounds. Most of these were from cars that had reached the end of their particular of their particular road. Redwood says that less than five percent were damaged, defective, or recalled. Five (laughs) percent. Oh, man. So when we get cars to the end of their end of their life, which I feel is going to be a lot like our phones, a a ton of planned obsolescence is going to be built into the EV market. The actual batteries we're so concerned about, right? You remember when hybrids came out and people were like, oh, after like four years, that car is just going to be e-waste. And then people would take like the original Honda Insight and like clean off some of the battery terminals. And it was still like 70% effective you know, in terms of battery charge and range. And, and you're like, no, there's a lot of life in these things. And we've seen some of those other stories where um, I want to say it was, I want to say it was a Ford. I saw an engineer break down like, hey, no, no, it was a Toyota. It was a plug-in hybrid. Um, this engineer like was having issues with his car. His battery wasn't really charging optimally. He takes it to a Toyota dealership. They're like, hey, you know, it's what happens with batteries. You know, there's just nothing you can do to stop it. They're going to age and wear out. Well, we can order you a new battery pack. It's going to be like $10,000 to like, you know, install this battery pack. And we're talking like some old Prius. 
So the car is not worth $10,000 at the time the engineer did this. So the engineer like pops the battery out, cleans the terminals on the battery. He's like, I was very careful. I don't think anyone can really just do this. I'm an electrical engineer. So I, I you know, took all my safety precautions and I probably did some stuff that was a little dangerous because I've never worked on a car. And he puts it back in and his battery's back up to like 95% efficiency. Like the battery pack was totally fine and it just needed a tune-up, essentially. Um, and a very sort of minor one, if he had had a full like garage, like a garage that specialized in hybrids and EVs, it wouldn't have been a thing at all. And that's what I think we're going to run into. Um, for all of the people that are like, oh, well, we're really worried about EVs and battery packs in the environment. Once a battery pack has worn down where it's not Ex- uh, performing acceptably for a car. This article also goes on. Redwood Materials is saying like, hey, we can salvage these battery packs and then use them as static storage for like businesses. So let's say your business just gets a ton of solar panels. You could get a whole bunch of repurposed EV battery packs to use as power storage for your business. These are the, the battery packs that might end up in home power storage, like Powerwall type solutions like just because it's not immediately powerful enough to run a tesla zero to 60 in under five seconds doesn't mean it's not incredibly capable of storing power to like run your fridge and watch tv off of (laughs) like those are different power draw concerns so uh I, i just thought this was kind of a brilliant little look one year just in California and partnering with some of the companies that are just starting to get their electric fleet mobilized. Like Tesla was not one of the partners of this Redwood Materials pilot program. Almost 1,300 battery packs in one year had to be dealt with. That is an insane amount of material. That is an incredible amount of material. And as EV prices continue, I'm not EV prices, as EV sales continue to climb, we're going to need an entire infrastructure built to recondition, repurpose, um, retrofit, handle all of these battery packs. And then also the the exciting thing is like, hey, Tesla's quoting you $20,000 in labor and parts to completely replace this battery pack. Or you can go over to this other repair shop and it's a battery pack that's 80% efficient, but that's going to keep you running for a fraction that cost. Maybe it's 3000 with parts and labor. You know, I'm totally throwing out completely specious numbers, but that's why our right to repair initiative and control over our products and having an industry where we can use these parts for other things. They aren't just stuck to one vehicle or to one computer or to one smartphone is so critically important. If we don't get ahead of the right to repair initiative on EVs, boy, howdy, is the future going to be grim (laughs) when the entrenched businesses are like, nope, you can't use another battery pack in our car because that's uh, intellectual property and it violates the DMCA and copyright an IP law. So you have to use our battery packs. And that means, uh, you know, a new car is going to be $30,000 and the battery pack replacement is going to be 25. I mean, it's not, but that's what we're going to charge you to do it. 
and you can't take it to another repair shop. And if you think that's outlandish, that is exactly what Samsung is trying to do with screens. So Samsung is almost single-handedly probably going to destroy a huge chunk of the right to repair initiative here in the United States. Because if something has a screen or, or a screen is shipped to the United States, they're using our government to stop imports of other types of OLEDs to the United States. Now, there's a, an intellectual property issue because we've made certain types of pixel designs. So you can't, you can't bring that in. You can't bring in another screen. So it, you know, let's say you've got a Galaxy S10 and you crack the screen. You just want to replace the screen. If you went to a repair shop and got a good screen, knowing that it's not a Samsung screen, knowing that it's probably not as good as a Samsung screen, but it's really cheap, uh, you can't do that. But if you want to replace your Galaxy S10 screen, we'll happily charge you four or $500 to replace that screen. Oh, wait, you can buy a whole new phone for about $500? And we could do a trade-in? Well, gee, wouldn't that be better for you? Rather than keeping your Galaxy S10 out of a landfill and using the phone for a lot less, we could just have you buy a whole new phone. So if we don't want that to happen to cars... <laughs> then we probably need to get ahead of some really awful business practices. <laughs> uh, from Kenox80, the truth is recycling of automotive parts takes up to 50 years to get right. Good example is lead acid batteries and coolant. Also, people are still assuming that lithium, lithium ion batteries will be the go-to battery. Solid state batteries are being developed to replace them. And that's also the techno te technology arms race. EVs are going to evolve far faster than our regulations can adapt to new and changing technologies. So what we're looking at today is not going to be the market that we're going to see in three years, in five years, in 10 years. And we're trying to build legislation and regulatory practices today on an industry that is changing dramatically in real time. It is such a complicated moving target, but it's happening. And it's it, like I said at the beginning of this, this is a, a shockingly terrifying uh uh, infrastructure and challenge to examine because as you pull on one thread you think like oh well we're going to switch to evs and we're going to have to do this but what about infrastructure and what about shipping and what about distribution and what about repair and what about end of life and what about recycling and you pulled on one thread and it it changed the the web of industry completely but the thing is we have to do it if we wait or we try to stall it or we try to put it off, it's just going to continue to get more complicated and more expensive as time goes on. I feel we need people up to the challenge of really trying to tackle this today and then moving from forward from there, especially if we could also start building in some smarter regulations that say things like, hey, you're building your car with a lithium ion battery pack today. What can we do to ensure an industry of compatible energy generation so that when solid state batteries become more accessible, someone could swap their lithium ion technology for a solid state technology. And if you write that into the code, if California says, hey, we're, we care about the environment and this needs to be a part of your build and you need to be able to certify that this is the direction you can go, our cars get more expensive, but that stuff works. We've seen, you know, California sets the standard for air quality. Other states get to benefit from California saying, nah, 
you can't sell us that car. It pollutes too much. We already have problems with our air quality. You got to cut back some of that particulate. And they're not going to completely redesign that car for other states. So other states get to buy similar benefiting technologies, but California had to take the hit of being the, oh, the mean taskmaster that has the evil regulations on it. And then everyone else is like, oh, yeah, but the air is cleaner. <laughs> All right. Um, man, I, I'm still kind of racking. Uh, we're, we're almost through the news block here. Um, let me to get another drink of water. I'm already getting a little fuzzy here. All right, real quick, just because I think that this is interesting sort of political drama, um, but I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure how it's going to play out. I think the ultimate we're, we're going to take a brief look at the Activision Microsoft merger because it really does just seem to be mired in. In, in court cases that are performative, I really don't believe any of these lawsuits are going to stop the eventual acquisition of Activision. But this is the opportunity where governments and other companies get to sort of put their hands out and Microsoft is going to jump through some hoops. And then when people get what they want, then it's going to go through. So if the argument is, hey, we think... Microsoft acquiring Activision is going to be bad for the video game playing landscape, we would really be sticking to our guns in a regulatory sense. If it's, we need these kinds of campaign contributions and we need these kinds of business strategies for distribution of games that will benefit Nintendo and Sony, well, that's different. That's not a consumer harm. That's a business concern over future profit models. That's not we really do believe this is going to be bad for the consumer. So I haven't been breaking down every single story that's come out. I actually have some personal <laughs> attachments to Activision that uh, make me a very poor journalist for covering the story in any kind of objective or unbiased sense. Um, but this one story popped up because I just thought it was kind of funny that if you don't make the right kind of noise in the right way legally, your tactic can come back to bite you. I'm a huge fan of Sony. Uh, we don't own an Xbox in this house. Uh, my wife and I, we've been PlayStation fans. But over the course of the pandemic and because of scalpers, we never jumped on the PlayStation 5. I'm actually looking at rebuilding my little nook because I have a power supply failure. And with the Steam Deck, I've really been more on PC gaming lately than console gaming. Um, but I'm a Sony fan. I love Sony phones. I like Sony cameras. We've always been a PlayStation household. So when Sony started making a whole bunch of noise about the anti-competitive nature of Microsoft acquiring Activision, I feel a number of us techies went, but wait a minute, doesn't Sony sell more PlayStations than Microsoft? And don't Sony, doesn't Sony usually have like way more exclusives than Microsoft? Because like I have Game Pass, right? I, I, I own a PlayStation, but I still pay for Game Pass. Because I can play Game Pass on anything. I have a dozen devices on my desk right now. They're all Game Pass capable. 
And one of them is a Sony. <laughs> I mean, it's right here. Here's my little Sony Xperia. And I can play my Xbox games on my Xperia. Sorry, this was really rambling. I just want to pop in here. Uh, this is the actual story written up by Chris Scullion over at VideoGameChronicles.com. The FTC has told PlayStation it has to reveal its third-party exclusivity deals. Sony's request to quash a Microsoft subpoena has been mostly rejected. <laughs> this, this to me is, it's a, it's a particular breed of legal irony that I think is kind of hilarious. Um... Microsoft served Sony with the subpoena in January as part of its defense building process ahead of an FTC lawsuit regarding its proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard. The subpoena included 45 separate requests for Sony documents, including copies of every third-party licensing agreement Sony has and, quote, all drafts of and communications regarding, end quote, SIE President Jim Ryan's declaration to the FTC. So Sony is now fighting this, pretty hard because that's a lot of proprietary information and I don't understand how Sony's legal team okay we know like Sony executive leadership Sony PlayStation corporate leadership is probably saying like hey we want to block this but let's also see like what kind of deal what kind of benefit we can get out of this and Sony's PlayStation service, I don't really feel is as good a subscription service as Microsoft's. Um, it's, which is so funny because I really do enjoy PlayStation and PlayStation games. But then you know, I, I do also pay for a, an Xbox uh, subscription too. It, I like playing games. I like being able to play as many games as I can in whatever way that I like. Um, but... It's almost like a tangible flavor in your mouth that you knew there was an, a corporate executive push to try and block this acquisition, Microsoft and and uh, Microsoft and Activision. But then their lawyers probably screaming like, "Hey, you know, like the more you fight this, the more people are going to start looking at video game contracts, and the more that people start looking at video game contracts, the harder it's going to be." for PlayStation to come out looking like some sort of aggrieved little wannabe video gamer, right? They're, they're, they're kind of the big dog in gaming. It's like Nintendo, PlayStation, Microsoft, Xbox. Like, you're not walking away from that conversation like, oh, but we're going to be bullied by that naughty Microsoft. And you're like, no, that's... That's not how this works. <laughs> and the more light you shine on Sony business practices, um, the less your arguments are going to look, um, uh, the less people are going to be able to identify with your arguments, the less sympathetic you're going to look. So this is a great write-up too. Um, I, I'd highly recommend checking out the Video Game Chronicles link because um, it is really funny watching all of that kind of get sort of picked apart in, in courtrooms. So um, we've got one more story here. I'm going to take another drink of water. And this one also kind of deals with some dicey, sensitive uh, content. Um, so let me, uh, let me just sort of steal myself here, and then we'll jump. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet. 
and I hope you check out what they have to offer. Hey there, Juan, and hey there, you. This is Jason Howell from All About Android over at the twit.tv podcast network. Juan has been a guest on All About Android a number of times. In fact, we have awesome guests on the show each and every week. And we'd love for you to check out the show if you haven't already. Twit.tv slash AAA is where you can go to find new episodes of All About Android. Each and every week, we talk about the top Android news, hardware, apps. We have a reviews portion called The Arena. It's very competitive, but in a fun way. We have a really great time doing this show, and we would love for you to join us sometime and check it out. We get uh, journalists from throughout the Android world joining us. We even sometimes get Googlers who are actually making Android on the show to talk about what we love so much about the world of Android. That's twit.tv slash AAA for new episodes of All About Android each and every Tuesday. All right, Juan, back to you. Oh no, Aditya. Oh buddy, Nintendo, Sony, Micro Who, Real Gamers Game on the Soldier Boy console. Well, if I if I had any type of tone in my voice on that comment, unfortunately, now I'll, I'll probably get sued by Soldier Boy for not not being nice. So you can now like sue people like uh, uh, on Twitter if you say mean things about someone on Twitter, if they live in the UK, they can sue you now. So, um uh, here's the deal. Uh, I have maintained uh, a ban on reviewing or covering Apple uh, devices and content on my channel. I was loudly and aggressively against their proposed plan of on-device content scanning. So there are numerous challenges facing law enforcement agencies and we need to do a better job of empowering international collaboration to stop the proliferation of abusive materials. And I'm being very careful in my language here because of how streaming platforms um, handle these kinds of conversations very, uh, very poorly. I felt Apple's strategy was a cynical move to reduce their server load. So what happens on an iPhone? You upload a photo to your iCloud and the iCloud server has to scan that material for certain hash information that would indicate that that is um, abuse material. Well, that costs Apple money. So what if for every single upload to iCloud, your phone scanned the content on the phone before uploading it to iCloud. And if it detected anything, it would alert Apple and law enforcement on Apple's behalf. Because Apple is also trying to wash their hands of that process. They're saying, we don't actually control the hash information that might indicate some type of abuse material. We send that along to a human team that works in law enforcement and you just get flagged. And then also Apple doesn't monitor the bucket of problematic material. That's fulfilled by third party and government organizations. So in Western countries, that's probably not a huge deal. Um, but in more oppressive regimes, that would be a hugely problematic because uh, just spitballing here, let's say 
someone doing that kind of on-device scanning content moderation in China decided to add Winnie the Pooh to the filter list. And someone has a photo of Winnie the Pooh on their phone, and that's deemed improper, illegal distribution of materials, and then that person gets sent to a gulag. And that's not a slippery slope argument based on how certain governments react to problematic images of authoritarian leaders. So I believe if you send your material up to the cloud, well, your material is now on someone else's computer. And they have a responsibility to law enforcement to monitor and manage the material that's on their servers. If, if you're sending abuse material through any type of mail or digital distribution or some type of platform, that's where we have an opportunity to crack down and better find how distribution of that material happens. I very much disagree with my phone needs to scan everything that's on my phone and monitor that conversation with some type of outside organization or law enforcement agency. I feel that that is a recipe for abuse. It only takes one bad leader here in the United States to start tapping law enforcement to dig into everything that gets scanned on like a political enemy's phone. And we've seen in the past where NSA, CIA, uh, FBI, they've engaged in some practices with you know, sort of our right to privacy uh, against unlawful search and seizure, that that can be an issue. Again, that was a really long preamble. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I get rambly on stuff like this because I kind of need to make it clear. I, I had a wonderful sit-down inter- interview with an organization that actually does help coordinate with law enforcement on child abuse. And they, uh, they were in favor of this content scanning practice, but when you talk to their individual members and, and sort of their sort of executive members, the biggest f- challenges facing law enforcement usually aren't this one person has a problematic image on their computer. That doesn't help them really untangle the network of distribution and the human trafficking abuses. Law enforcement needs better tools to collaborate across countries and regions, and then we need to spend more resources going after the bigger players that are actually creating and distributing all of this content. And you really get very little benefit with, my phone is reporting me because I had an image that looked like something kind of problematic, but it wasn't, so now I've got to go and talk to someone in the FBI. Like, that doesn't really help them, but it gives them a ton more data to sift through. It's like the NSA's phone scanning technology didn't really prevent a lot of malfeasance or a lot of uh, terrorist attacks. What really helped us in that age of scanning phones was a, a healthy investment in traditional intelligence gathering. Just dumping more information on the problem doesn't solve the problem, makes the problem worse. Whew. Okay, so this is a story that's written up by tutenoda.com. I don't know this and I really do need to kind of dig in a little bit more uh, to follow up on this information. But this was the first article that I saw about it and I want to read up more on what this might look like. Uh, Quote, there is no prosecution at any cost. Germany opposes EU plans for client-side scanning. It would create an unprecedented surveillance monster that violates fundamental rights. Um, On March 1st, let me highlight that. 
On March 1st, the German, par German Parliament held a hearing in the Digital Committee on the EU Commission's draft law to fight CSAM, uh, abuse materials online, also named chat control. IT experts, civil liber libertarians, law enforcement officials, and even child protectors agree the EU's proposal does not protect children, but poses major risks to fundamental rights. Um, th this is this is a very delicate and sensitive conversation. I, I feel we always have to sort of listen and pay attention when it's a won't someone please think of protecting the children kind of argument, both because there is truth in that and also because we've seen that argument abused for other political gain. I, in a very cursory uh, reading through some of the links in this article, I would be concerned over the, the reach of client-side data that would enable European countries to more closely monitor what their citizens are enacting and engaged with. I feel that this would be problematic in the way that it's written, in its current form, in its current state, but I definitely appreciate those who are trying to foster intelligence gathering and law enforcement's ability to stop one of the most horrific practices in the digital era. I don't think this is it. And th the worry is, you can kind of wrap up a, a conversation like this in a won't someone please think of the children and a government can push a narrative that engenders an emotional response from the citizenry and experts and, and lawyers and human rights activists are going to have a much more difficult time getting out a counter message. Um, I was in a Twitter spaces uh, in the middle of the pandemic. It was in 2021. And uh, it's this like this room full of like really high level people like uh, journalists and politicians. And they're they're having this this free and open debate about, you know, apples. They're going to scan your phones and they they start bringing in questions from the audience. And someone says, like, I'm really concerned about this. I don't like how this hash scanning technology can be defeated and fooled. Um, we can make someone a political target very easily in more oppressive regimes. It's going to be. Um, you know, a, an issue for keeping people safe if they have a dissenting opinion against their government. And the first comment from one of the journalists on the panel, point blank, hit this person who, I mean, he's speaking up in a Twitter space. So already this is someone like, you're probably not a pundit used to kind of having to field Fox News style rapid fire interviews. And the, the, the person, the journalist on the, pa on the panel was like, so why are you for child abuse? Because you have to be for child abuse. If you don't want Apple to scan your phone, well, th that means you're, you must be supporting the distribution of child abuse materials. And, you know, again, that immediately shut down. I mean, you, you literally watched people just leave the Twitter space. <laughs> there was no conversation after that. So that's why this becomes such a, difficult conversation to, to kind of tangle yourself up in. Um, Apple has made a public acknowledgement that they are going to be walking away from client-side scanning on Apple devices. I don't like some of their other 
on-device and advertising scanning policies. And right now, it seems Apple is engaged in fingerprinting all of the data on your phone in a way that I find very distasteful. So I haven't completely walked back my ban on reviewing Apple gear. I am looking at what might make sense for future Apple videos. But I feel like if I pick up an iPhone, in every video I need to point out, Apple is scanning your stuff in a way that they won't let anyone else scan. And if you're going to be outraged about Facebook, you should be outraged about Apple. And then I'll have a whole bunch of Apple fans being hateful in my comments, too. Um, yeah, Gormlord, but there was no opportunity to. So Gormlord says, that's such a stupid loaded question, though, I'd call them out. Except, if you're in a Twitter space, they have to approve who's going to come up and be the next speaker, right? So it, it's, a, it's, it's a completely... Uh, it's a completely rigged debate tactic where you can pull the plug on anyone who might be able to counter that type of tactic and you kind of leave this open air you know this this fart in the room just kind of hanging in there and anyone who's going to try and fight you on that now has to defend themselves it puts them on the defensive so it's 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 completely counterproductive to an actual serious conversation of of what what's going to matter to people but that's where we are I, I was called some really ugly things when I put out a video saying, like, hey, I'm not going to review Apple products until they walk this back. And I got a lot of people. Well, you must be someone who's in favor of, and if you have nothing to hide, and if you think that that's going to stop anything, and I, I, it doesn't matter. I'm still not going to do it. <laughs> I still think this is a bad idea. And now we're watching Germany try to oppose a flavor of this same style practice in the EU. We absolutely need to pay attention to this one because, again, if this type of regulatory practice gains traction in the EU, we will absolutely see a flavor of this here in the United States. And I don't know about you, but I don't want our current crop of politicians to have the nuclear option of being able to just dig through the content on consumer devices. Or on corporate devices. I, I feel like that is bad for all of us. And that is not a left-leaning or right-leaning issue. There shouldn't be a division between liberals and conservatives on that one. It's bad for everybody. <laughs> and it gets in the way of actually empowering real law enforcement um, uh, reform. Jojo the Techie. Juan, you apple shill. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. McCorkerin. The logical fallacy there is reducto ad absurdism. Reducing your opponent's argument to absurdity. Correct. (laughs) Oh, that's... I mean, again, I love... Isn't there that... There's a website that you can just, like, link someone. Your logical fallacy, your debate fallacy is. All right, just real quick. We had an interesting week here on the subreddit. This is reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. I'm just going to screen share this right here. And number one was just a photo of a, a certain nothing phone individual holding up the Unihertz Luna, which is a nothing phone one clone 
with lights and glyphs on the back. Um, so that took the top spot on the subreddit this week, which I thought was pretty funny. Number two on the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles, rectangles, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. YouTubers sold out to Skillshare the truth from Logically Answered, 400,000 subscribers. And just uh, sort of an editorial looking at the business practices of Skillshare and uh, the sort of sponsorships that they're engaged in. Then number three, I loved this video. I can think of few few people on YouTube that do as good a job in kind of making these thought pieces as Tech Alter, the death of Europe's last electronics giant, and taking a look at the fall of Philips Electronics. Um, this was a fantastic video. Then rounding out the top five, we've got some dork in a hat looking at 200 megapixels versus 50 megapixels, and we've got Tech by Germain. Unbelievable camera quality from the Vivo X90 Pro. Daytime shoot revealed. Tech by Jermaine. And I would agree. (laughs) The Vivo X90 Pro has been rocking my socks. So if you would like a broader tech conversation than just whatever is the most algorithmically popular on YouTube, which leads to hateful and misogynistic comments for you to have to filter on your own or you get community strikes... I would recommend checking out some subreddits that are built to kind of help foster a sense of that kind of community. Be the change you want to see in the world. If there's a a content creator, an editorialist, a blogger, a writer, a journalist, or a YouTube content creator, if it's written, if it's podcasting, if it's video, and you feel they deserve more attention, please share their stuff over at reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. And also... Click some of those up arrows while you're there, because then that helps all of these content creators who are making fantastic work. uh, It helps all of their channels out. DePoets put up a video about trying to uh, transition from Windows 10 to Windows 11 on a Threadripper PC, an AMD PC Threadripper system. And this dude did the work. So like not only just different you know, hardware configurations, looking at different benchmarking, different power, different output. What is it uh, an upgrade from Windows 10 to Windows 11? Or was it a completely clean, fresh install? Windows 10 to Windows 11, what kind of problems, teething pains? Like this video took him probably three days just to put together, let alone shoot and edit and upload and do all of the nonsense with uh, links and, and tags and thumbnails and all that mess. And this video easily deserves another zero at the end of its view count because it's good work. It is the kind of work that we should be celebrating. But, you know, it's not as algorithmically popular and it's hard to make a stupid thumbnail out of Windows 10 to Windows 11 without like shocked face and red arrows that point to nothing and it blew my mind. And if that's the YouTube you want, then I don't know that we're going to be able to see eye to eye on stuff like that. I like DePoets because he makes really insightful tech commentary videos and he has dignity. (laughs) I like dignity in my tech conversations. (laughs) I love it. So reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. Tell him Juan sent you because I'm one of the head moderators over on that subreddit. Yeah, Simon says, Hypno, that, um, that Phillips video was awesome and sad tech alter so good and again i can just listen to his videos just like because he's got such like a calm narrative 
Um, they're just great. Just great videos. And, and again, from someone that I trust has actually done the work to read up on the topics that he's talking about. Not someone who's just like, oh, I don't know, this is popular, so I'll just make another video about Samsung. No one's watching videos on Philips Electronics. He's a genius. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs>
then you would be able to shoot insanely high frame rate slow motion. Because let's say a ball, a tennis ball is only 2% of the pixels on the screen. The rest of the pixels can stay static. And then we can just track that ball's trajectory. You could shoot 1,000 frame per second in 4K because the rest of the 4K image is totally still. And only the little differences are going to be applied from frame to frame to frame to frame. So there are not, not only just like consumer entertainment advantages to this, there are a whole slew of really exciting scientific uh, changes that we might be able to see from this kind of technology too. It is fascinating stuff. So I've got this link. This is the actual prophecy uh, press release that they're going to be partnering with Qualcomm. This is a strategic partnership that could be very exciting for consumer facing, but then also every other industry that relies on especially high speed photography, this could be blown wide open. I mean, just imagine a Qualcomm chipset in a proper like mirrorless camera combined with pixel sensing technology and you're shooting like 8K video, but you can do it at 240 frames per second for scientific research of how ballistics work, you know, that kind of stuff. It, I get really excited about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, Farhan, that Prophecy collab sounds like a great boost for mobile videography, especially with gimbal stabilization. And you might not even need gimbal stabilization at that point. If we're already detecting pixel-level movement, then it knows if the background scene is changing dramatically. So you already have the data from how the phone is being moved. You, you could end up with even more hyper-stabilized video in software than adding another piece of hardware. That actually might make the camera's job harder. Because if it's detecting, hey, this was all static, but we saw that the, that the angle changed two degrees over the course of this video, then you could take software and say, well, just correct for the two degrees, and then all we need to do is save the pixels that change minus the entire canvas changing two degrees left and right. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, I, I, I nerded out pretty hard on this one. This one, to me, could be really practically exciting. Um, I also wanted to bring up a quick accessory here. I've gotten so many questions about this little accessory dock, and I wanted to share a few thoughts. We don't have to dig into it too much. I don't have one to play with, but I'm a huge fan of desktop modes, and uh, I want more people using their phones like actual real computers. So this uh, this is the Miraxis, I think is how you pronounce it, or Mirazes, Miraxis. I like Miraxis, let's say that. The Mira dock is a little hub that has USB ports, an Ethernet port, an audio output, USB-C, HDMI, uh, SD card, and micro SD card. And then on the front, it's got a USB-C that you plug your phone down into, built specifically for Samsung decks, ready for Huawei Easy Projection or the Honor uh, Magic Desktop. So it looks really clean. It definitely helps with cable management because all of your ports and cables are on the back. And uh, I think it also has like a switcher built in so that you can push a button and you can switch over like accessories and peripherals if you have like two different devices connected at the same time. So that to me is the exciting part is that it's kind of a hub, like a KVM switch, 
built into a smartphone dock. So like, say I had a monitor and I plug my phone in and I push a button and then my phone's desktop mode pops up. I can do that on my monitor. I have a little button here and I can change the input, but it would be kind of nice to have sort of a proper just splitter, right? Something that can do it much more easily than going through my monitor's um, settings and modes. But as an actual just sort of dock, I don't know where it's that much different than just having a laptop hub. So you plug a phone in and then you have USB ports, micro SD, SD card, HDMI output, power. You can get docks with ethernet on them. Um, I'm holding up an easy quest right now, but I've got a bunch of, I've got an audio dock from Eco down over there on the bookcase where it has a really high quality DAC built in too. I like the idea of making this a little bit cleaner. Um, I like the idea of taking, I think I've got it over here. Oh, I might drop a whole bunch of stuff. Listen, as I move these things off of my bookshelf. So this is the, uh, the Microsoft continuum dock. Um, you know, I've got USB ports, HDMI display port. I mean, you can connect a whole bunch of stuff to this. This was a great little hub for windows phone back in the day. And the leaf blowers are right outside my window and they're just hanging out there and it's killing me and I'm trying to ignore it and I'm totally failing. So that's, that's kind of cool. But the thing is like, you don't have anything to prop your phone up. So you plug in your phone with a little cable and your phone just sort of lays on your desk and that's not as clean. The, the Miraxis, the Miradoc, let's just call it the Miradoc. <laughs> Um, the mirror dock is solving that by having a USB-C port and it props your phone up. So this is good, but I have two concerns. One, I don't believe this does a very good job of accounting for every single case that's out there. So I'm using the Note 23. I've got a really chunky boy bumper case on this. And that adds a lot of additional... Uh, clearance to the USB-C plug. And when we look at the USB-C plug on the mirror dock, it doesn't look like that would do a great job of accounting for a case with bulk at the bottom of the phone. If it does, if it sticks out enough that it really will clear a good chunky case, then I would worry that we're putting additional strain supporting the weight of the phone on the USB-C port because it can't be perfectly flush with the back plate. So you plug in your phone and then it kind of rests against the, the flat part of that dock, which means it's probably putting micro tension on the guts of the USB-C and kind of bending it out. This was a, a big problem that I had with a lot of iPhone accessories where you'd get a speaker dock and you'd plug your iPhone into it and it would prop it up and it would look really cool right? Your iPhone is sticking up straight out of this speaker arrangement. And then people would complain like, oh, my lightning connector is totally loose now. So I have to like jiggle the cable to get it to charge again. And I fear USB-C would probably do the same thing. I think, I'm not completely sure, I think this mirror dock, if I'm looking at this photo, has a bit of flex built into the USB-C port. What I see from this boot here that circles the USB-C plug is something that probably allows for a little bit of give in much the same way, do I have it over here? That my GameSir 
So this is the, the GameSir controller. And this is going to be really hard to see in podcast. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to make this look better. But the USB-C port has a bit of a hinge. So you angle the phone, plug it in, then telescope the controller and snap it to the sides of your phone. I would imagine that there's probably some version of that for the Miradoc, but I still fear resting the weight of the phone on that dock. Because it's not holding the phone sideways in a controller. It's resting the weight of the phone on that dock, having it lean. So even if there is a bit of give on that USB-C, it's still kind of pushing up against the edge of the USB-C port will eventually wear out a phone's USB-C. However much usage, I don't believe it's something that would burn a phone out right away. <laughs> I don't think it's something like, I used it for a month and now my Galaxy can't charge ever. I don't think it's that. It's just a concern that if we're trying to keep these phones around longer, I, I bet you could get a very easily a similar setup. I just set this hub down. Oh, you could get a very similar setup out of a less expensive hub that would also work with your laptop. So if you're traveling and you want to add like an extra monitor and USB-C ports and a memory card reader, you could just take something like this and it works with your phone or your laptop or your Steam Deck or your Nintendo Switch. I like accessories that work with multiple devices and gadgets. And I think a good laptop hub is probably a more cost-effective way, but it won't look as nice on your desk. So that's my feeling on it. I, um, I, a lot of people were asking me about that. We got a bunch of questions on uh, the best of our week. And we were so into our conversation about MWC, we kind of had to skip over some of those questions. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the pro and con. You don't have the switch. You don't have a KVM switch built into it. But I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm so precious with my KVM switch. Like... Right now, I've got my Bluetooth keyboard in front of me, and I can also run it off of a puck, and I've got my wireless mouse that can run off of Bluetooth or a puck, and it's not as convenient as a one-button KVM switch. But I am running dual display on my desktop, which this Miradoc won't support. So if you want dual screen, and you want to switch your accessories over quickly, I've got a little switch here at the ba on the bottom of my mouse, and I can flick it from the wireless transmitter to Bluetooth, and then it connects to my phone. Not as convenient. Totally going to give you that. But if I want to repurpose accessories and have them actually be sort of interoperable, <laughs> there are some solutions that already exist. And so that's why I'm, I'm lukewarm on what Miradoc is claiming is a big barrier to entry for people trying out their phone desktop mode. Um, from Malik. I actually don't think so. Uh, Malik writes, would it be better to have it be a complete wireless solution by this company to resolve that concern? I'm not a huge fan of wireless computing. Like when we're talking, especially about displays, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a tease. It showed up in the mail over the weekend. So this is the new U-Perfect. I just dropped 
a very expensive piece of technology that I'll have to check later. This is the new <laughs> monitor from UPerfect, 1080p, 60 hertz display. Um, it's got the really fun kickstand that I love from the UPerfect 15.6 inch monitor, but there's also this extra bulge on the back. Well, that's a little different. The last UPerfect portable display did not have this little sensor housing. And the UPerfect comes with this sort of stand-up puck. It's not even a puck. It's like a stand-up wireless obelisk that has an HDMI port, a power port, and a USB-C port. So you set this up and you plug your phone into, the, into this and it sends a wireless signal for your display over to the monitor. And so one of the big problems with Miracast is build, using Miracast in a phone with sort of a built-in Miracast solution in a laptop dock has delivered terrible frame rates. Like, at best, you're at 30 frames per second, but with noticeable input lag between using the product, between using the display, having the signal go to the phone, having the phone process the movement, and then go back to the display. So UPerfect is creating a wireless system to improve on that signal latency. I've only used it for a very, very, very short period of time. Interactions plugged in over a cable, still better, still noticeably faster, still noticeably more responsive. This has improved over Miracast, so that is improvement. But if we start talking about wireless, and especially wireless for displays, it takes so much work and it gets so much more expensive to almost get to where we are by plugging in a display cable. And I don't feel the price to performance. I don't care about wireless enough to make that happen. I get comments all the time and people want it to be wireless and I want it to be wireless and I don't want to be tethered by a cable. And you're like, I get it. That's fine. But like we learned this in audio, the best fidelity, the best signal reliability and signal consistency happens over a cable. We know this in gaming. Pro gaming doesn't game over Wi-Fi. They game over dedicated routers and switches with ethernet cables plugged in because that's pro gaming. And now with displays, if you want wireless headset, you either have to deal with extremely low fidelity or you have to spend a lot on a proprietary wireless signal distribution to keep your frame rate up high enough that, high enough that you don't instantly puke from, uh, from motion um, data instability. You're not instantly motion sick because the frame rate keeps chugging on you. Um, sorry, <laughs> Malik, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. Um, I, I, I feel like there are challenges. Um, yeah, Farhan, this is kind of what I'm saying. I can't use it. Uh, this is from the article quote, this lets you quickly toggle between using your display mouse and keyboard with your phone or your laptop. For example, that's a KVM switch. KVM switches have been around since the late eighties. KVM switch is not a particularly fresh piece of technology. I like the application here. It is a little novel being able to quickly switch between a phone and a computer, but I can't use it on a dual display. Or I might be able to if it has a USB-C pass-through. That I should look up. 
I should actually shut up about making that the 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 hard statement if I can plug my, my art monitor will work over USB-C that could work. But the notion of I need to quickly switch from one computer to my pocket computer using the exact same peripherals that I've got in front of me I feel is a novelty that won't grow the interest in desktop computing on a smartphone. Because so many people through the momentum of familiarity will just stick with their main computer and then it's just kind of a novelty that they can plug in a phone. Maybe their kids will do that to some degree. They'll plug in a phone, but their kids are using iPhones and you can't do stuff like this on an iPhone. So again, just the reality of what our market looks like today, I feel like that's also a difficult argument to tackle too. Um, What I feel is going to move the needle more is on a dedicated infrastructure for just using the compute power of your phone. And I know that there's a transition. We've got to get consumers over the hump that they use their computer to do computer things and they use their phone to do phone things. But I really feel we need to find accessories that make the phone more attractive, not well, when you want to do this, you can still mostly use your PC. And then you can kind of use your phone from time to time, too, if that's what you want to do. This, this feels like it's addressing the wrong side of, of, the, 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 of the argument. It's addressing the wrong side of the consumer barrier to using more of your uh, phone's compute power. That, all really super rambly, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> oh, Ted's trying to share some OLED links. Yeah, a portable OLED is is not difficult. In fact, there's like a 13-inch OLED that I think is on sale for like, what is it, like 170 Portable 13-inch OLED. It looks so good. So I love wearable displays. I love portable displays. I love laptop docks. I mean, like, this stuff is, I feel like a... Some type of extra screen is the single best accessory purchase you can make that supports an entire family of gadgets. Portable display for your Switch, portable display for your Steam Deck, portable display for your phone, for your camera, for your laptop. Go go dual display on a laptop. Every gadget in your household can probably benefit to some degree by having some other screen laptop dock or wearable display at your disposal and I use those and reels a ton I use my laptop docks a lot and I'm using them with multiple devices and one purchase covers all those bases which to me is much more exciting than just like oh you buy this one Samsung thing for your Samsung phone and you buy this one Apple thing for your Apple phone (sighs) Este Bandito, I don't care about wireless. This. (laughs) I mean, at some point, wireless is going to get good enough, but it's kind of like headphones for me. I really like this evolution of, of true wireless earbuds. I also need to bracket that against how much e-waste we create, the repairability of those earbuds, and the fact that even for improved quality, because the quality has improved substantially, they are still not as robust or as consistent as a good cabled solution. And now I've got to jump through hoops to get a dongle DAC and plug my headphones into that. Or if I'm going to go wireless, I trade where the wire is cut. So instead of the wire being cut 
you know, directly to the earbuds, I cut the wire from the DAC. And so this is like my little Theo. And then I also have the Griffin, um, the iFi Griffin. And, you know, so now the phone sends a wireless signal to a portable DAC of some kind, and I can use any cabled headphone that I want. And I have much better signal stability between a bigger transmitter receiver than I do with these little in my skull antennas and radios per ear. I went too long on this. <laughs> I am the, the, the long and short of it is I want more accessories that highlight your phone has compute power that you're wasting. Your phone is stupid powerful. And, and I'm speaking specifically to people that have like older phones too. Here is a 300 euro Poco. This, this Poco X5 Pro costs 300 euro. It's got a mid-ranger SOC, the Snapdragon 778. This phone is ridiculous overkill for covering smartphone basics. I take a couple calls, I text, and I use messaging services, and I like to scroll through social media, and I've got an okay camera for a couple little snapshotty photos. At 300 euro, you have an order of magnitude more compute power than you need to accomplish all of those average tasks. This could be someone's home desktop computer in addition to also being a 300 euro phone. That's where we're at. All I need is something that can get the compute power out of this and onto a screen. And so ultimately a Miradoc, if that's what convinces someone to give this a try, great, go do it, please have fun playing with some of those accessories. I just feel that there are some other solutions in there that people are kind of overlooking because they're technologies that have been around for a really long time and they don't seem like, oh, I should be able to do that with my phone. A KVM switch is something you have always been able to do with your phone. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Again, I'm taking way too long on all of these. Ah. Yeah, own's gone. I'm telling you, man, portable OLEDs have gone, gotten crazy. I see a 16-inch portable OLED for $200 with an $80 off coupon. $120 for a portable OLED. It might not be the brightest. It uh, might not have like a battery built into it. But if you just need to plug a screen into something like a Nintendo Switch... And actually, if you want to plug it into a Nintendo Switch, it might be able to charge the Switch through the screen if you plug that into power. Um, it's real easy. I'm not recommending people buy outlandishly expensive accessories. Like, the, the sort of, I think the peak idea of this would be a laptop dock, which is like a full laptop shell, protects the screen, closes the case, can be used in a tent mode. You don't have to pack a stand to carry it. It's got a battery to not only power the display, but charge the connected device, has hubs, headphone jacks, speakers, memory card slot, USB accessory support, full 360 degree wraparound hinge. And that's going to be about 350 bucks. That's a bit pricey. That is a portable monitor. <laughs> it's not that expensive. And it will last far beyond like a single accessory for your phone. 
I have my uh, second generation Next Dock back there, the Next Dock 2. It's not the Next Dock Touch, it's the Next Dock 2. That thing's still going strong. And it's going on five years now. And every single time I plug a new phone into it, it's like that computer gets even more powerful. When have you gotten computer upgrades over five years just because you also happen to buy a new phone? Like, that's where we're at. I love a good portable display. And I love these different permutations of battery-powered, OLED, touchscreen, um, some wireless connectivity if you really need wireless, laptop shell, or just put a display on your face and have the ultimate privacy, large home theater, but it also fits in a shirt pocket. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. Ah. Get this out of the way here. And... Uh, and just kind of speaking about some of the other things, too. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this. Um, uh, this is Unfortunately, it's not a situation like warn your family and friends. Well, I mean, warn them, but like there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, from Cult of Mac, uh, written up by Rajesh, Rajesh Pandey, um, Apple now charges more for iPhone, iPad, and MacBook battery replacements. Uh, cost of, for the iPhone 14 series, the company estimates $99 as the battery replacement cost for out-of-warranty repairs. If you have an iPhone SE, iPhone 8, or an even older iPhone, Apple will now charge you $69, which is up from $49. Cost of an iPad battery replacement has also increased $20 to $120. And MacBook batteries are now between 160 and 250 depending on warranty, Apple Care, and what model of MacBook you've got. So that little window of time that we had where Apple was being punished for throttling your CPU because they put in inadequately sized batteries and iPhones has finally kind of moved on and now repair costs are climbing on Apple products too. So uh, make sure your family and friends know, but that's another one of those tactics and strategies where you could go through and it's going to cost you like $100 to replace this. Wouldn't you rather just put that $100 towards a whole new product? And then you're like just perpetually leasing a just seems like you know you could get also just sort of get yourself an upgrade and we have our own you know sort of payment plans and uh you know we can we can subsidize the costs and do trade-ins and boy you know that'd be pretty sweet you don't need to repair your stuff you can just get new stuff that's pretty cool so that's the end of the gadget block <laughs> at 10:57 in the a.m now we can talk about phones Hey, podcast listeners, I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. 
At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. Yeah, McCorkran, you can buy a used iPhone 8 or SE for like 120 bucks on eBay or Swappa. I, I, I still have the, the only iPhone I have in-house, uh, excuse me, the only iPhones I have the original iPhone SE because I absolutely adore the 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 build and the the form factor of the original iPhone 5. So I have the original iPhone SE and then I have the iPhone SE 2020. Those are the only two iPhones I have in house right now. So it's those two and then an Apple Watch Gen 4. I think it's a Gen 4. Um, which to me was also one of the best Apple watches, uh, especially for like battery life. Cause the year after they tried to do that static screen stuff and like it got more powerful, but then it didn't last as long away from the charger. So I ended up going back to uh, gen four. So, um, I have been playing with the note 23. We're going to close out this show talking about some fun stuff. Uh, this show got real heavy and I kind of knew it would. And so thank you, everybody, for kind of sticking around. But Note 23 and then also the Xiaomi 13. And this is also coming alongside playing with phones like the iQ 11 and the OnePlus 11. And so ultimately, what, um, what I want to start this off with is with the people that I have in this live stream right now, I would consider us to be tech enthusiasts, and each of us probably has a brand that we enjoy. Um, right now, I have really enjoyed the kinds of conversations being held by um, Xiaomi and by Vivo, which I just had on my desk because the Vivo X90 has been getting used for a ton of my photography and B-roll. And now I can't find it, the Vivo. Okay. So five of the most impressive consumer pocket computers that I've ever played with. And what I've enjoyed has been a content creator conversation that Vivo with Leica, uh, no, no, Vivo with Zeiss and Xiaomi with Leica have taken in a direction that I think is, I mean, it's just really exciting to see from a more traditional photography standpoint. Um, I'm playing with the the Xiaomi 13. This is not the Xiaomi 13 Pro with the amazing one-inch type sensor. All of my one-inch sensor photography has been on the Vivo and then last year's Xiaomi 12S Ultra. So this is a slightly smaller sensor, more in the ballpark with like, um, who, who used this sensor before? The OnePlus, OnePlus 10 Pro and the OnePlus 9 Pro and I believe the OnePlus 8 Pro had a sensor size similar to what's on the Xiaomi 13. I really like the Leica Authentic. That photography style, the more sort of natural color processing, and the way that the structure and sharpening is happening is really aesthetically pleasing. 
Um, I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, I, I was rolling around in the dirt and I had the Note 23 and a bee flew into my field of view and I tried to do what I think this sensor should do really well. The sensor on the Note 23 is the right size to nail a two-time zoom crop. I do that all the time on the Pixel. I did that all the time on the X80 Pro. These are very similar sized sensors. So I zoom in, two-time zoom, and I shoot a photo of the bee, and in that little burst in the viewfinder, it looks like a great sharp image of that bee. Then I go home and I'm getting ready, like, hey, I'm going to share this on Instagram. I'm really excited about this shot from the Note 23, and I blow it up, and it is just a mess. And I don't understand why Samsung is copying Apple in scrubbing out anything that might look like ISO noise in direct sunlight. This is a direct sunlight, uh, like late morning light photo of the bee. Like, this isn't stormy weather, this isn't cloudy or overcast, this is like direct sunshine, and it's just completely smearing out all that detail. And two companies are the most guilty of doing that in their auto modes, Samsung and Apple. And Samsung used to be way over-sharpened, but they didn't use to smear their ISO noise reduction nearly as aggressively. And so I really should have listened to my advice. I tell you, like, hey, if you get this phone... I think your best results are going to be in the manual modes. Even if you shoot full auto, it's not going to have as destructive editing done to that final image. And now we're getting this really smeary oil painting effect in full auto that used to only be an iPhone thing. <laughs> and now Samsung is kind of leaning into that too. So I'm shooting around with the Xiaomi 13, smaller sensor. I can't drive it as hard as I can these one-inch type sensors. I mean, a 12S Ultra is going to beat this in so many um, direct kinds of ways, even though this is the newer phone and it's more, po uh, more powerful. But it's still a delightful little shooter. Um, it goes toe-to-toe -to -toe against what I would expect from uh, an S23. And it's actually a little bit smaller. It's not a little phone, but it is very close to the size of an S23. It's... it's shorter but wider than like an Xperia 5. And I really have kind of missed having just a more reasonable one hand fits in my Hobbit hands kind of phone. It's like you hold it up next to, oh, my, my screen is going to wig out here. Let me get that. You hold it up to the Note, Note 23 and you see just like how petite this little Xiaomi is. I miss that. Almost all of the, 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 the toppest, high end, highest ended phones that I've been reviewing lately have been pros and ultras that are all demonstrably bigger. I think the thing that's been most exciting, um, and this is where I feel our review industry is starting to miss the forest for the trees. Um, I've been playing with the IQ 11 and the OnePlus 11. Now we've got Xiaomi with, you know, a really powerful phone. Samsung making the biggest claims about Snapdragon for Samsung. I've done a whole bunch of performance testing, like video rendering tests, podcast audio tests. There's an envelope for the 8 Gen 2. So far, no phone has been the complete winner. So if I put Geekbench 
on a phone and I run a synthetic benchmark and I get a big number, that big number has not predicted where one phone is going to be better at video editing. Another phone is way better at audio processing. So if you're recording a podcast from your phone, there are phones that do that better than others, even though they have the same chip inside. Some phones were better at file compression. Some phones were better at image stabilization. Some phones were better at um, uh, photo, uh, batch photo processing. So taking a raw photo and editing a batch of those photos, no one phone has taken the whole chart. So I'm sitting in front of the Note 23, and we all know that I very much have had miserable experiences dealing with Samsung PR, and I really don't like how the company is operating, and I really don't like how Samsung treats their customers. I think Samsung's success has been bad for the overall Android ecosystem. I was more prepared to hate on the Note 23 based on some of the early performance testing. Because the majority of the early performance testing that we really look at, like, what can this chip do, was largely focused on, a, was largely focused on one game, Genshin Impact. I don't think that's a good game to benchmark Android, because it is noticeably better optimized and has better support for accessories on iOS. We know the developers in mobile have given the best version of that game to iPhones. So I don't understand why we keep leaning into power management, frame per second, refresh, why we keep using that game to test Android devices. That doesn't mean I don't think you should play the game, but if we know a piece of software is significantly better optimized for one platform over another platform, why would we use that as a benchmark without highlighting a couple other games back and forth that can help diversify that conversation? So I don't play Genshin or Genshin. I don't know if it's soft G or hard G and I really don't care. It's not a game for me. I just don't enjoy it. Um, but, you know, I fire it up on these devices just to kind of see in an opening level kind of way, what type of frame rates can you expect and the 8 Gen 2 has been phenomenal. This is a huge evolutionary leap for Qualcomm. It catches them up to the performance we would expect from the best iPhones, even knowing that the software is not very well optimized for Android devices. But Samsung performed very poorly there. In a lot of these early tests, we saw the worst power management and the worst performance per watt out of the Note 23. That prepared me for a conversation that didn't really hold true for the rest of my performance testing. I can't point to the Note 23 being the winner in any of my conversations, but it is hanging with and it is outperforming other Android devices in ways that do point to this being probably the best implementation of performance hardware that Samsung has ever delivered. And especially if you've ever had to deal with Samsung Exynos chips, this is a significant upgrade over the performance per watt and uh, thermal performance of any previous generation of Samsung device. If you're a American like I am, this is evolution. 
if you're European or in another region in the world, this is revolution. This completely changes the dynamic and the handling of the phone in a way that Samsung has never managed to get right with their own SOCs. Power management is better, performance is better, and running it through any other game, I'm seeing some interesting results. I'm seeing some results where this does seem to be an early glimpse of what an 8 plus Gen 2 might deliver. And it's going to be up for individuals to say like, hey, does it really matter to me that I get three frames more per second in a graphic graphics demanding game? Or do I really care more about the complementary features like a better camera sensor? Because I can put um, my Vivo. My Vivo has a dimensity where I just set the Vivo down. The Vivo has the dimensity 9200. It gets lower benchmark scores in synthetic benchmarks. And I would say the Note 23 definitely outperforms it in things like video editing and rendering and batch photo processing. Does it outperform it enough that I would choose to pick up the Note 23 over the cameras on the Vivo? No. No, I'm close enough. I'm close enough to the performance of the Note 23 that I will happily make that trade and go with the Vivo for the optics and the camera sensor that I like better. And that's the kind of conversation that we need to do a better job of delivering. Focusing on one game doesn't tell you much. It tells you very little. It just tells you how well it plays out one game. There are a ton of other games that we can point to where the Note 23 does... I mean, you can test scientifically where the Note 23 outperforms my Xiaomi 13. But then there are games that the Xiaomi 13 just kind of slaps the Note 23 around. The, the, all of the people, this is the other one too. I'm kind of spoiling. This is going to be a Patreon article where I'm much more concise in delivering all of these here. So many people have been like, wow, Note 23, they finally nailed it. The battery life is amazing. The battery life on the Note 23 is amazing if you lived out of the Note 22. The battery life on the Note 23 is comparable <laughs> if you've been using any 8 plus 8 plus Gen 1 or 8 Gen 2 phones that have already been released. I get to the end of all of my performance testing. So you run a Geekbench. I do four different types of video editing and rendering tests. I do Google Photos, stabilization, and editing tests. I do um, batch photo processing at a PhotoMate. I do audio evolution for my podcast mixing. And then I do RAR, RAR Lab for file compression. I get to the end of all of that. And the Note 23 does not have a high performance mode, but it used a bigger percentage of a larger battery than I used on my Xiaomi 13. My Xiaomi 13 was run exclusively in high performance mode. Note 23 does not have that. The Note 23 does not let you turn up the 8 Gen 2 to use it at its maximum, everything is managed by Samsung, the high performance version of this. Running all of those tests sort of side by side, these two phones, and trying to keep the screen resolution similar, the Xiaomi 13 used slight, a slightly smaller percentage of a smaller battery than the Note 23. So when people say like, oh, the battery life is just so amazing, it is if you lived out of Samsung. That's how underperformant Samsung has been in this type of battery conversation. And let me tell you, when I needed to recharge both of these phones after running all of those performance tests, 
the incredibly fast charger on the Xiaomi 13 topped me off substantially faster than I could recharge my Note 23. So those conversations really, you got to get into like all of the little nitty gritty and nuts and bolts. And, and it's frustrating to me because like, I looked at a lot of those early tests and benchmarks and power management things and you're like, okay, yeah, I think I know what I'm in for here. Samsung is getting the benefit of Qualcomm technology, but they're still kind of clogging it up with their own stuff on top of it. I haven't found that that's been as consistently true as I was expecting it to be. And that, that, that leaves this conversation kind of in a lurch. If all you do on a phone is cover the basics and play Genshin Impact then I guess don't buy the Note 23? I, I don't know who that person is. I don't know who that person is who wants the best product that Samsung makes, wants a high-performance computer that fits in their pocket, and only browses social media, takes the worst kinds of point-and-shoot photos, and only plays Genshin Impact. I don't know who that person is. <laughs> I don't believe that person exists. I believe that is a reviewer. The only people who really fit that template, who really fit that mold, probably live like me, where there's a dozen phones on their desk. And then that's an easy way to then go, oh, but, you know, really the bestest phone is an iPhone 14. And you're like, no, that's, that's not what this conversation is about at all. If I'm looking at a $1,200 Android, I'm getting a lot more phone for my money. That's hilarious. So, um, yeah, we, I feel like we've lost as reviewers and as tech enthusiasts that um, I, I think we should look at this as, a, as an educational failure. That some, especially in North America, not, not in other regions around the world, but especially in North America, it should be a profound defeat. And we should be so upset that average consumers totally feel like an $800 iPhone purchase is the right purchase to make just to cover the smartphone basics. But that's like the, one of the top selling models of any phone in the world. And the average selling price in iPhone land is over $800. We should really be upset about that. Look at all of your family and friends who do not tap a fraction of what their phones can do having spent that much money. But short, short story, incredibly long. Um, there's going to be an article out on the Patreon where I break down all of my graphs and you can kind of see the differences. The, the new LumaFusion tests have been running like butter to kind of showcase some of these differences between uh, different SOCs and different, uh, different phone manufacturers. And uh, it really did make me blink um, for someone who really does not like Samsung. Uh, I feel like the early conversation on the note was already primed for that kind of iPhone Samsung comparison drama. Oh, but look at this. Well, it did this one thing in a benchmark and that's weird. And you're like, that's not what this phone is about. I really like notes and I like notes for what they handle specifically. They are productivity devices. They are get work done kinds of devices. And if you compare a Note up against an iPhone 14 Pro, you're talking about fundamentally different kinds of pocket computers. But you know what? In Genshin, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it loses by like 10% in Genshin for frame rate. That's the only game people play. 
I mean, it doesn't matter if I play Alien Isolation, Dust in Neon, Dead Cells, Baba is You, Undead Horde, um, Pascal's Wager, uh, if I fire up a game streaming service or any other type of game. I, I mean, I finally sat down and did Before Your Eyes. And yeah, I got to the end of it and it was just waterworks and I was just crying and sobbing like like a little baby. Um, but, uh, you know, I did that on a phone and I purposely wanted to wait until I could run it from a phone because Netflix has uh, has Before Your Eyes. And you're like, at the same time as we're besmirching mobile gaming, we're also acting like there's only one game benchmark that matters. <laughs> That's not how any of this works. You would not watch a laptop reviewer if they were like, well, I played this one game, and then I got a Geekbench score. So this laptop is not worth it for the monies. You would laugh that laptop reviewer out of the room. Because we acknowledge laptops are significantly more complicated and more diverse than just screen and keyboard. Because that's what average consumers use. They use a screen and a keyboard and a trackpad. And that's the only thing that matters. And here's a Geekbench score and smash that bell icon. If I hold up a Note 23 and a Xiaomi 13, and we can't acknowledge that one is a Great Dane and one is a Terrier, <laughs> what are we doing? One is a big old heavy-duty truck. It's a dually truck with, like, an extended bed, and the other is kind of more of, like, a, a nice Toyota or, like, a Honda Accord, you know, sort of a nice mid-range sedan. We would never sell someone who needs the Honda Accord a Ford F-250 turbo diesel. Like, we would never pretend that this was the same conversation. But when money is on the line for YouTube marketing and sponsorships and, and ad revenue, suddenly it's just, what can we do to make an iPhone look like it wins? Well, I, I only pick up my phone and without even really, like, looking at the screen or touching to focus, I just push a shutter button and then I immediately upload that to... To Instagram, and that's how smartphone photography works. Literally, that's DxO. Not that's not literally DxO's testing, but DxO only tests in auto mode. They don't highlight any of the different functional software settings, nothing else. So, if that's what you think a note shoots, then you are sorely um, undereducated. I'm, I'm, I'm saying you. I've got 51 people watching the stream right now, and I know all of you know all this stuff because I've, I've prattled on about it in the past. And I'm definitely pre preaching to the choir, but it's like we're not spelling this out well in, in our commentary around tech. Like, if that's what you think a Note camera does well, you are getting the worst version of that Note camera. That's where a Pixel camera crushes. That's not what a Note does well. A Note should be used in a fundamentally different way than a pixel. And I would say on opposite ends of the bookending spectrum, both of them, I think, do a better job in most situations than what Apple is currently doing on the iPhone. So, um, we should probably wrap that up. <laughs> I've, I've really been enjoying my time with the Note, 20, uh, Note 23. Like I said, for last year, the Note 22 was one of the best phones of the year. If you think you're going to want a productivity pocket computer. And the Note 23 is kind of the same, but it benefits from Qualcomm's better technology. So it's a better version of what we had last year. I feel like that's good. 
I don't know that I'd flip a Note 22 for a Note 23 unless you were specifically having some kind of concern over power management and battery life. But even then, man, it's it's tough because they're so similar. But that's also a good thing because they're so similar. You know exactly what you're going to get out of those two uh, out of those two devices. So, Carl, and, and again, I, I used to turn to DxO a lot. Uh, Carl says, speaking of DxO, Mark, I saw someone saying to someone other... Uh, I can't read. I saw someone saying to someone, to another person, they should upgrade to the Note 23 from the Note 22 because the DxO, Mark, is better on the Note 23. If you catch my video talking about 200 megapixels, I feel that there is some validity to the comparisons that we're seeing. Because we're seeing a lot of videos like Note 23 versus Note 22 and look at how much more detail you have. Isn't that better? The 200 megapixels are giving me so much more detail. I don't think it's the megapixels at all. But I do see where we could probably find some improvements and where pure auto mode testing would improve Note 22 to Note 23. If you know what you're looking for, and you know what's causing or, or where, where I feel the biggest benefits are happening, that is a completely different conversation. I wouldn't begrudge someone upgrading to a Note 23 if specifically that's what they were trying to accomplish. But I go into that far more eloquently when I'm reading from my script and my notes and I put all that information together in a better polished and edited video. So catch the end of my 200 megapixels versus one inch sensor video and I kind of spell that out more completely. Um, But yeah, the the biggie is everything that I like about what's improved from Samsung this year really hasn't come from Samsung. It's Samsung is benefiting from a much better chip fabrication and manufacturing process from TSMC and Qualcomm has delivered a better product than what we had at the beginning of 2022. And now Samsung has kind of retrofitted their phones from last year to take advantage of that new tech. So it's tricky. I don't want to say like phones from last year are all now just e-waste and you should throw them away and they're all garbage. If you have, if your needs are being met using phones from last year, then I think you're fine. Keep just keep hanging with that. I don't know that you're going to see the direct tangible differences that I'm talking about because I'm trying to drive all of these phones to their limits. I'm trying to shoot aggressive video, edit it, upload it, you know, process it, render it. And I feel that's where we see the most uh, substantial differences year over year. If you're not doing that, then you're probably fine. And you've probably been fine. And you've probably been overkill for processing power since the Snapdragon 845. Like, was that 2018? I don't feel like consumer needs have evolved radically since 2018. I mean, even shooting more video, I think I could pick up a phone from 2018 and cut awesome TikToks and reels and shorts directly from my phone with very little slowing me down or holding me back. (laughs) So... Whatever you need to take from what I just said there, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah, it does look pretty good from Roth. Um, as long as it can play YouTube, we good. Also, trailer for the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem looks rad. Um, yeah, I, my daughter is now much, much, much more interested in the Ninja Turtles. So finishing Shredder's Revenge was the best thing that could have happened for a Ninja Turtle nerd like I am. Um, she's still not old enough yet for me to have her read. I've got the... I actually have... It's in tatters. It is shredded. But I have a fourth reprint of the very first issue of the Eastman and Laird Ninja Turtles. And I've got the first five um, graphic novels of all of the comics that takes you through... Uh, it takes you through the Fugitoid era of Ninja Turtles. So those are all like PG-13 to rated R <laughs> in terms of violence. My daughter's not quite ready for the original Eastman and Laird Ninja Turtle comics, but I have I have a couple years of comics ready for her to go <laughs> when she wants to see like, these are the Ninja Turtles that daddy grew up with. And like, oh look, that guy just got speared. <laughs> Cowabunga! <laughs> So good. So good. Oh, man. Let's get this out of Fugitoid. I'm telling you, man. Those those classics were so good. And again, like dark indie comics that were all satire. And, and I love it. I love that it's sort of been accepted as canon by both Marvel and now whoever owns the rights to the Ninja Turtles. That like the same accident that that Daredevil Matt Murdock was a part of is also the same accident that sort of birthed the Ninja Turtles and that kind of stuff. I just like I love it. It tickles me so much. It's so fun. It's why I love comics like The Tick is that it's smart satire. You have to love comics and then you get this little extra just spoonful of salty snark on top of it and it's hilarious. So anyway, um, we're going to wrap this up because my voice is actually going now. I'm going to take one more sip of water and then we're going to close it all down. Shut it down. So, folks, um, apologies for the heavy beginning. I, I felt like that was a, a topic and a conversation that we needed to, to have, I needed to have, and I'm glad that y'all kind of allowed me that space to, to sort of talk through some of those complicated feelings. I'm going to have a lot of stuff that I'm going to try to be focusing on fun things. Um, I've got a follow-up video that I want to shoot on e-bikes, especially, like, protecting e-bikes. Um, I have articles that are almost half through written and structured talking about performance and testing. Note 23, camera samples, uh, video rendering tests. I did a showdown with the Note 23 versus the Pixel 7 Pro and LumaFusion. You probably aren't surprised which phone won that comparison. Um, and then from there, I need to spend a little bit more time gaming. Um, and sharing some of my experiences gaming. I've been using the Razer Edge and the Steam Deck. And very recently in our household, my wife has started picking up the Steam Deck just, like, without it being that's Juan's toy. It's becoming more of a family gaming conversation, and that to me is fascinating. My wife doesn't game a lot on her own. That to her is a social activity since the earliest days of Atari. She wants to sit on a couch next to someone, even if we're playing a single-player game. But she's started picking up the Steam Deck 
without making it a big deal, like asking me if it's okay or anything, which is what I always wanted. I always wanted her to feel sort of empowered to play a game on her own and not feel like she could only do that with me. So there's, there's something in there. There's a, there's a conversation in there. And then also just so many accessories. Like I was showing off a portable monitor, but like if you're gaming on a, on a Nintendo Switch and you haven't played with another controller or a portable monitor or better earbuds to send you latency-free audio, like there, there's a way to flesh out this experience and, and, and it gets really fun because it's stuff that works with everything else that you own too. So, excuse me. Yeah, my voice is totally going now. <laughs> um, folks, I want you all to have a fantastic week. I want you to do awesome with your technology. I want you to be awesome with your technology. Uh, tune in. Uh, there are a number of fantastic streams going on all week. Um, I'm not sure who's actually streaming, but I think the the sort of normal slate of like Gadget Goddess, uh, Easy Computer Solutions, LaShawn. I don't know if um, Ike is going to be back this week. And then also Tech King Mike popped in for a stream last week. So I hope we'll see some more from him. Um, El Jefe Reviews and uh, Tech for Your Needs. There's just a wonderful, like, on the regular. They're streaming, you know, every week. And this community is so much fun to, uh, to, uh, to jump in with. So be on the lookout. Tons of videos, tons of articles, tons of streams, lots of conversations happening, and some really, really fun stuff because, man, now it's just harvest season. We got all the MWC announcements, and it's time to play with all this gear. So let's, let's really try to have some fun with it. Um, take care. Take care of yourselves. I always make the, like, I always forget the whole thing that I like to say. Take care of yourself so that you can also help take care of others. And I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SDGQA podcast channel. Be safe. I love y'all. I'll catch you back. Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today. Day.